All right. I think we'll get started. Um, yes. Sorry, I hope I didn't hurt your ears. <laughs> Great. Um, to get started, I, I want to start this off by saying, um, even before we do introductions, that the reason that we're here today and that we, I proposed this session and got Jillian and Chris to, to agree to participate is not because I or we have all the answers, but because I think this is a question that is really worthy of attention. So we're hoping that this is going to be an, this, this session is going to create an opportunity for lots of conversation, and we now have a wireless mic. And we're being recorded for future listening, so if we ask you to use the wireless mic, that's why. Um, so, so I'll start um, by just saying I, I'm Sarah Jenks. I work um, at Ford's Theater Society. Yes. I, I thought I was. Is it not? I wonder if you know me. Is that? Is, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking because, all right. Hi, again. Um, my name is Sarah Jenks. I'm Director of Education and Leadership at Ford's Theater Society in Washington, D.C. Um, and I, the internship program is actually not part of my job. Um, it's something that I care a lot about, and I've been really involved in, and I'm, I'll talk more about how I've been involved in it, but it is not part of my responsibility to oversee. Okay, so um, that's my introduction. Is this on? This is working? Okay. <clears throat> um, so my name is Chris Taylor. I'm the Chief Inclusion Officer at the Minnesota Historical Society. Um, and so my job is like internal and external strategies for inclusion across the institution. It's relatively new, so we're still kind of figuring out where it all is going to go. But we've been doing a couple of things in terms of um, developing talent. We've been running a museum fellowship program for about seven years with undergraduates, um, specifically focused on um, uh, placing students of color and other students who identify as diverse within the program. Um, and then really trying to give them a, a, a better understanding of a why it's important that we diversify the mu museum field, but also what they're getting themselves into or what the challenges are and what the culture is like and whatever. So, um, so we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, and then we also have kind of a traditional um, internship program too that we try to recruit uh, and uh, bring diversity into that program and whatever else. Hi, I'm Jillian Reese. Um, I'm one of the founding members of Museum Workers Speak. Um, we're an action-oriented online platform that looks at labor issues as um, intersectional. Um, by intersectional, we're using um, you know the the very traditional um, Kimberly Crenshaw definition of um, you know, people have multiple identities that influence their positionality and power in our society. Um, our, the intersection that we're interested in is labor access and inclusion. 
Um, we were born out of the 2015 AAM annual meeting that happened in Atlanta. The topic of that um, conference was um, the social impact of museums. And we had a group of us emerging professionals from all over the country um, had been having informal discussions related to museums respond to Ferguson. Some of you are familiar um, with that sort of conversation in tweet chat. Um, and we were sort of thinking about um, the internal practices of museums and how those affect our ability to um, succeed at our missions. Um, we wanted to do a formal presentation at AAM, but they declined. <laughs> and that was probably the best thing they could have done for us. Um, we ended up holding a rogue session uh, that happened about four miles away from the conference venue. And if you know Atlanta, getting people four miles away from downtown Atlanta um, can, be a can be an issue. Um, we had about 175 people show up to that first convening. Um, and that night, we went two hours over our planned time. And we decided to sort of continue the conversation. It was very compelling, and there seemed to be a need for it. Um, we hold monthly tweet chats. Um, some of the excerpts of these tweet chats you'll be seeing on your screen. Um, this is just a really small sampling around some of the topics and themes that you'll be hearing about today. And um, we have uh, organized, we have grown as an organization. We now have chapters in six different cities across the U.S. Each one of them are looking specifically at different issues um, and trying to tackle issues. Um, we were asked to participate in this presentation. Um, I live here in Detroit. I work at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, so I was chosen as the representative for Museum Workers Speak. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. I think Sarah um, was interested in asking us to come because a lot of our members are emerging professionals, but something that um, we'll be talking about more, I think, but that has been highlighted with our work is um, a, a, a call to pay interns. Um, and I think that's probably what, if you're aware of us, that's probably what we're known for best. I'm going to use this because it's too awkward to try to use this other one. Um, so let me, let me tell you my story. Um, and in the process of doing that, you know, I'll explain a little bit about why I wanted, as, as Jillian said, I wanted the, Chris and Jillian to be here or someone from Museum Workers Speak. So the basic story behind my being here right now is that um, I'm terribly concerned about the lack of ethnic and other kinds of diversity within my organization. And I am on the senior staff, but I'm not the person who makes budgetary decisions um, because, as I said before, the interns program is not part of my budget and it's not under me. And so um, I was, I've been trying to figure out for the last couple of years how to go about um, making change from not in my, you know, not in, uh, things not in my control. And so what I, um, what I identified as the first step that we could take is 
to try to pay our interns so that we, we were able to bring people in to um, be interns. We have a great internship program. It, people actually learn a lot of things in our internship program. That was originally, we thought that's enough, that they learn things. But the problem, um, the problem from that point then becomes, um, it's great that they're learning things, but if they can't, they don't have time to do this, this internship because they have to do work study or because they have to have another job, then it doesn't matter how much they're going to be learning. So for a couple of years, every year I would try to put this in the budget, and every year it would get cut to have uh, stipends for our interns. And finally, we went through in 2014 a strategic planning process um, in which one of the pillars of the, pl of the plan was to build internal capacity to diversify the organization and the visitors. And the reason, um, and then I was able to bring this back to our senior staff and say, you say you want to do this, we have to pay our interns. How are we going to do this? How are you going to make sure this happens? And this year, we were finally able to do that. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to be open and I think, I hope we can all be open. What we're doing is we said, it's a part-time internship, 20 hours a week. We'll give you $200 a week for 20 hours a week. It's not... I did a huge amount of surveying. We're not at the very top of the pile in Washington, D.C., but we're, we're up there. Um, and I also had wrote out all the living expenses that young people have um, living in our city. I, I made so many arguments, and I'm so grateful that it worked out. Um, but I also have been part of this larger conversation at AAM and here saying, you know, internships at the moment are a huge... Um, barrier to entry to the field. Almost all of us, raise your hand if you have an internship program of any kind at your organization. Yeah, so almost everyone here has an internship program. And we expect people to be interns in some way. And so the question becomes, how do we get people in who are not able to do an internship, an unpaid internship? Um, and I've, all, I've been listening to the conversations with um, museum workers speak. I've been getting to know Chris and the amazing work that he's doing at Minnesota Historical Society. And the first step is to pay the interns. Of course, it's not the only step. You know, once you've, once you've got the money in the budget, the next thing is how do you recruit effectively to get in, to make sure that people know about the paid internships and then to make sure that they're actually that that you're actually finding interns who maybe don't look like your staff so then you have to think about how are we hiring so that we look like a more appealing place to work right then you have to think about retention and so there are so many steps to this process and I know many of you have been involved in this work uh, through AAM but I'm looking at it from the position of a, a fairly large, we have about 50 people in our organization, but not enormous organization. And I'm looking at it from the perspective of the actual practical steps that you have to take to make something like this happen. Not theoretical, but very, very practical. Um, and, and so that, that, that's where I'm coming from. And I'm going to be I hope I'm going to be asking these guys a lot of questions, and then you all are going to be doing the same thing. But I want us to talk for a moment about takeaways um, from this session. Our hope is that this is a project that we can move forward with trying to um, make happen 
um, and operationalize all of these steps that I've just been talking about, that we can work together to do it. Because it's very, very hard to do it alone. Um, and the other piece that I would say, as someone who's in a fairly uh, a managerial position, a, sec a senior staff position, but not the person in charge, is that I think we need to do our very best to create a sense of allyship between people who are in emerging professional positions and internships and people who are in management positions. Because often there's a tension. I'm not sure that that tension, I think in this instance, the best thing we can do to make these things happen is to get people talking to one another. Um, so having said that, Chris is doing, is doing amazing work, and he's going to talk about the history of his work and how he's made it work at the Minnesota Historical Society. And then Jillian is going to speak a little bit about what she and many others have been able to make happen using social media almost exclusively. Um, to create a voice for young and emerging museum professionals. And after that, um, we really are gonna, we're gonna open this up a little bit. We have some framing questions, but we're hoping to open up this conversation to all of you. Um, so, so we're doing a lot of stuff at my organization that um, I, I'm not gonna talk about all of it today because it's, it's relevant, but it's not directly relevant. Um, but some of the, the bigger things that we've decided um, within the organization or I've been able to get traction on is that when we're talking about inclusion, we're talking about inclusion being very intentional, um, meaning it has to be something that's put into your work plans. It has to be something that is... Um, it doesn't just happen by accident, right? Our museums are set up to be uh, very traditional and they run on a lot of inertia and we continue to just do what we do. So when we talk about creating some, some sort of different outcome than what we've been getting, which has been a very uh, dominant culture, white kind of centric staff throughout museums, we have to do things differently in our practices. And so intentionality is something that is, I think, one of the keys to, to being in, developing in, inclusion within your organization. You can do it in a lot of different ways. We'll talk about how we're trying to not only bring more staff of color into the museum field, more LGBTQ staff, more uh, millennial staff, right, to bring diversity into the field, but then what do you do when you are successful with that, right? And how do you retain, how do you advance, how do you create leaders within your organization? Um, and so those are some of the things that we'll talk about today. And one of the things that I think another concept that we're really buying into is that, so not only is the work intentional, it's internal, right? So the issue lies with us within our practices and our mindset and our attitudes within the organization, at least that I work for. I'll, I'll speak for my organization, but I'm, I'll make a broad assumption that yours aren't that much different than mine. Um, and so in order to do this, we are the ones that need to change. We can't just expect groups that have been marginalized by museums for 
however long, 200 years, to all of a sudden see value in what we do, right? Until we create that value by doing things a little bit differently. Um, and in order to do that, we're looking at our organization as a system and how we create change across that system um, in order to, to develop new practices, um, uh, how do we reward different behaviors, um, what policies and procedures do we need to change in order to create an organizational culture that will support and embrace diverse perspectives so that we don't succeed in bringing more diversity into the organization only to turn around and see our retention rate go down because the culture is either assimilate or move on, right? And so, so these are some of the things that we're thinking about. Um, you know, and when we're talking about like systemic change, there's some things that we have, we have done. So we've created a department that's specifically focused on inclusion and diversity within the organization. We're a big organization, I understand that, but at least within whatever structure you have, I think it's incredibly important to have somebody who is responsible for thinking about this in your organization every day when they come to work, right? This is somebody's job. This isn't something that, you know, uh, we used to have the mantra of, well, it's everybody's job, and it is to do the work, but who's creating the strategy? Who's setting the goals? Who's doing those types of things that are pushing the institution forward? And so, um, so thinking about that, that was a way to essentially disrupt our system of how we normally work. And so now we have a department that can help other areas with questions, with resources, or whatever else. Um, you know, and I think too, when as we're thinking about hiring and we're thinking about um, changes within those practices, you know, if we're looking at hiring as a system or as a practice and thinking across how within an organization that, that might look to change that, yeah, we want to increase our contact points with undergraduates or other people who fit kind of the target demographics that we're looking for, but we also need to look internally and look at our position descriptions and how we write those, how we talk about qualifications, right? I'm really interested in can we start to quantify cultural competence as a skill that as we want to bring that in to the organization and into our work, that should be something that we're looking for then um, in our position descriptions. Um, you know, how do we write our, or where do we recruit? Um, how do we train our hiring managers to mitigate bias within the hiring? There's so much research out there that says how I determine the best fit is who's most comfortable in terms of how I feel with you, which is gonna be somebody who tends to look as much like you as possible, right? And if we're saying, we're putting our stake in the ground saying we wanna diversify our staff, yet we continue to let hiring bias run rampant and we just hire for fit, that's not we're, we're saying one thing and doing another, so now our spouse values and our lived values are out of line. And so this is, these are some of the things that we're thinking about in terms of internally um, 
how do we create some of these systems to think about some of that. So um, yeah, I think I'll leave it there for now. Um, so when we're thinking about um, internships at um, within our group Museum Workers Speak and, and what we've heard of um, in these sort of informal tweet chats, at conferences, at convening meetings, is that, one, this is a white woman's problem, that the fight for getting paid internships is something that is going to privilege the privileged, um, and that labor issues are something that doesn't really resonate with um, other demographics. Um, outside of white folks. And I think that sort of our origin story, our founding committee, um, you know, really sort of puts that model into question. Um, you know, there's a very old saying that, you know, when a, when a white woman catches the cold, a black woman catches pneumonia. You know, that these... Uh, oppressive systems that Chris was talking about affect folks with to different, in different degrees. And if it's something that, you're, that we're concerning ourselves with um, and something that's viewed as a white woman's problem, you can almost bet that it's a problem for a lot of other people. Another thing that we've heard is sort of, okay, and, and Sarah kind of talked about this, I've created an unpaid internship program and I've done the work. Um, you know, then I've sort of checked off that box for the day. And unpaid internships is really sort of the low hanging fruit. Um, you know, a lot of my cohort are very radical and that makes them nervous. You know, this is the first sort of topic that we're talking about, that we're discussing, that people are grabbing onto very quickly. And we're very adamant that this um, work of unpaid internships, that's just the first step. Being able to offer fair wages for the work that your employees and interns are doing is the first step. Chris talked about this. I'm sure he'll talk about more. You really have to have an intentionality about what you are doing. You know, what... Why do you want to increase diversity? Is it because you want a better photo op for your museum when you tweet, you know, the staff picture? Um, or is it a real institutional value? And then what do you do to make sure that it's a value across the institution? Um, AAM released um, last year a memo um, saying that they support all museums moving away from unpaid internships. Um, I believe AASLH released something very similar. Um, you saw on one of the tweets, the president backs paid internships. So it's really something that, you know, museums need to be working towards. But in addition to getting funding, they really need to look at how the environment within their workplace might retain or push away the candidates that they're bringing in. And um, most of our core cohort who 
are um, people of color are out of the field already. There's been this incredible brain drain because they get in and they face really terrible working conditions and racism within their own institutions. And so you can offer them the best benefits and the best pay package, but if people are feeling you know, oppressed in their workplace, those great minds are going to look for work elsewhere. And that's just doing a disservice to the entire field. If, if some, you know, almost every institution says that diversity is part of their institutional values, but if all of the people of color that you hire end up quitting after a year or two, you need to really look internally and think about what you're doing within your institution that is the reason for that. On our Facebook page yesterday, we actually shared a survey about this question, about people who are leaving the field. And people my age, it's happening in droves, for sure. Um, we've identified some action steps specifically for this unpaid internship pro uh, uh, problem and how to um, evaluate your own internship program. Thinking about internships being evaluated based on job placement. Um, you know, not how prestigious your institution is, but how many, inter you know, how many interns actually get jobs or better yet, get jobs in your institution after their internships. We um, also talk about uh, graduate programs, providing funding for their students if they are required to do an internship. I went to the Cooperstown graduate program. Um, they fundraise, some of you might be alums, Chris is. Um, they fundraise every year for specifically a, a, a scholarship called the Rural Urban Partnership, and it's for students who get internships to have a stipend um, for the summer. I did an unpaid internship in graduate school, and I definitely would not have I come from a working class background. I do not have parents who are able to support me. I would not have been able to do that internship, which was really key in my development as a young professional. Um, we think that um, you know, looking at internships like the one at the Minnesota Historical Society, the Brooklyn Museum has an amazing internship for teens called the MAP Program. These really provide you with great great examples of, you know, internships that are geared towards recruitment and retention. And we say to provide candidates with feedback, the people that you don't hire. If you are hiring and or you're looking for interns and you don't take someone on, let them know why. Tell them where they can improve. That sort of feedback loop is necessary when you're talking about developing as uh, young professionals and emerging professionals. Um, <clears throat> just to go back to the question of how an institution can move from the position of just saying we really want to do this to actually making something happen, um, I want to speak briefly to the kind of um, grassroots effort that happened at Ford's, um, which was that 
we formed an informal committee. We did not feel comfortable forming a formal committee, but we were able to form an informal committee across departments um, and agreed that we needed to, this was something that we needed to make happen, to pay the interns. And for us, it really, it is, we, we can say it's low-hanging fruit, but it's amazing how it just keeps getting cut out of the budget. So this was a huge victory um, for us. And, and as I said, there needs to be some sort of survey, I think, across institutions that will allow us to understand who's paying, how, how interns are being paid. And I don't, I, I know lots of places are not necessarily going to want to provide that information, but it's one of those things that can make a big difference in us being able to move forward and actually be paid, uh, be able to pay interns. Secondly, um, in terms of, in terms of uh, looking at what the payment, how much is going to be paid, and then looking at how, um, I'm, I've lost my thought. I have to tell you, I'm very nervous. I've never been so nervous for a session, and I think it's because I care so much about this topic, and it's not exactly my area. <laughs> so, um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this back to Chris because he's gonna talk. This is his area. He's, he's a, gonna be a stronger speaker than me on this. We'll see. Uh, so, you know, so I've talked a lot about the Museum Fellows Program. I just want to give you a little bit of the backstory on where that came from. So, um, giving credit where credit is due, it's actually a program that started in the 1990s at Atlanta Historical Society. Um, and they ran, they ran it there, uh, and then Chicago Historical picked it up, and Minnesota Historical picked it up. And I'm actually a product of that program, which had an incredible impact on my life. Prior to that program, I didn't even realize that I could work in a museum. I didn't understand what the, um, what the career paths were. I didn't understand what the entry was and all these different things. And so this program um, had a huge impact on my life. And so we were able to um, bring that program back in 2010 at the Historical Society. And essentially what it is, is it's a course where students will get college credit that is taught by myself and one of my colleagues around, you know, uh, museums kind of 101, right? The intro to museums course, like what are museums? What's the role? What are the different functions? Um, it's also about issues around diversity and inclusion. That's a very heavy focus, even when we're looking at the functions, so exhibitions, collections, education, blah, blah, blah. It's all through a lens of um, diversity and inclusion. And the first five weeks of the course are very conceptual. So it's like shared authority, it's museum ethics, it's um, kind of civic engagement of museums and those types of things so that we're laying that out at the beginning. Um, then students do uh, a paid internship with us. We actually have three different cohorts of the program that we run. Um, so one, one cohort, their internships are with my department. And so um, over the summer, they worked on projects like uh, helping our collections department work towards collecting um, Black Lives Matter in Minnesota, right? And helping the collections department understand you don't just go out and say, hey, can we have some of that stuff? But how do you build a relationship and these types of things? So these undergrads were actually educating uh, 
our collection staff on how to do this, how to be inclusive, which was incredible. Um, they worked on cultural competency, learning and development modules for that we're gonna finish and give to staff as professional development opportunities and things like that. So they get to do real, real work. Like in my area, we never have enough capacity to do the stuff we wanna do. So when summer comes around, we're like, here's all these projects that you all are gonna be um, working on. And it, it's great for us, but it's also a great experience for them. And it's a direct application of what they've just learned in the course to a real world experience for them. One of the other cohorts, we do what we call externships. And so we actually place them at smaller museums in the Twin Cities. Um, because I mentioned we have a traditional internship program. So this is actually getting them experience at two different organizations because we can bring them back and they can do internships with us. But doing that externship, they can work in a smaller institution or they can work in a different, like instead of a historical museum, an art museum or something like that. So it's broadening the experience that they are receiving. Um, and so, so there's, there's different ways that we kind of do it, but essentially it's giving them a theoretical with the practical and helping them understand that we want you in museums, but this is what it's gonna be like. And change is coming, change is happening, but this is what it might be like for you getting into museum work. And so um, we feel like that's just a really good combination. And then we also get to travel with them. So our one cohort, we go to DC and we get to visit Fords and we get to visit a couple other museums, but we meet with museum professionals to talk about their experiences, right? Another group, we go to Chicago and we do the same thing, but it's essentially like, okay, so you've seen the museum landscape in Minnesota, now let's look outside of this, right? And I know what's running through your head is like, yeah, that's a lot of money, <laughs> and it is, but think about some of the core practices. Strip away the, uh, the travel for a moment, right? But can you work with students to do an independent study where you can provide them some of that content, some readings, some go back to your grad school books or whatever and help them understand some, some of those concepts about museums that just help them even know the language and the vernacular, help them understand what the different functions are, things like that, um, providing them real work. Don't underestimate what these folks can do. It's actually a huge benefit that these undergrads are coming in because they're so socially active already that they're pushing the museum and bringing a perspective that we don't have in the museum, at, uh, at, at, particularly at leadership levels, but in, in much quantity at all. And so the conversations that they're having, the meetings that they're going to and they're speaking up at, just brings a whole different perspective for the museum. So I would argue that while we're providing benefit for the participants, there's a huge benefit in it for the museum as well. And I think that, that that is something that we have to shine a light on as well. So it's really a mutually beneficial relationship that we have um, with them. And so, you know, there's, there's this experience that they have and then you know, what happens afterwards. And that's kind of where the conversation is gonna go next a little bit. And I think, um, 
you know, in terms of talking about mentorship versus sponsorship, right? And so, you know, the way I define that and the way we've kind of talked about it on the phone is like, mentorship is, yeah, I'll share some knowledge with you. You know, you can ask me questions, I'll be available and you can pick my brain. And that's, that's, that's good, that needs to happen. But when we talk about sponsorship, now we're talking about you all have positions and networks and a certain amount of influence and how do you use that to open doors for, for people who um, have earned it? I'll, I'll throw that caveat in there. I don't want to put my reputation on the line unless you earn it, right? But for those that do, why would I not try to talk to hiring managers and say, we have this person over here, you really need to pay attention to this application when it comes in, or things like that, because that's how things will change. Right, um, putting your stamp of approval on it carries a whole different thing than saying, "Well, I was an intern at your organization or whatever else." Particularly if you have a relationship with that hiring manager, your word is going to carry a lot of weight. And so, rather than just kind of passively sharing your knowledge, how do you start to open doors for folks who? you want to see in your museum and actively do that. Again, it comes back to that intentionality, right? I am going to help this person get hired. I am not gonna let this person float off into the ether, whether that means I'm just sending an email every now and then, or I'm sending them job postings, or maybe helping them get into another internship so that they can continue to build that experience, but also having conversations. Like, look, you're great but you need to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm just being honest with you, right? Um, this is what I would need to see before I hire you so that they can work on those things. So, you know, think about the flip side. When you don't know what you need to do to advance in your organization or to get a job, it's very hard to understand that. But if somebody gives you that one, two, three, these are the, the skills you need to develop, or this is what I need to see, um, and that gives them an opportunity to have agency over doing it or not doing it, right? So, um, so yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it there. Yeah, this was sort of a revolutionary moment for me um, preparing for this presentation was this idea that Chris brought this mentorship versus, versus sponsorship. Something that we had talked about a lot within our cohort at Museum Workers Speak is the, the need for mentorship programs, but I think Chris rightly points out that it needs to go beyond that. And I think that's what we were getting at, but this, this um, you know, idea of being a sponsor, of being a champion, is something that really um, opened my eyes and gave language to what we were trying to get at. Um, you know, we, I would just reiterate, um, you know, the need to take a chance on someone. You know, that you have, especially in today's day and age with the millions of museum studies graduate programs and then every iteration of museum studies that there are, um, you're going to have a list of am amazing qualified candidates. Um, plenty of them will be able to have done every unpaid internship at the Smithsonian. They might have gone to West Coast and done a few stints at museums there. Um, but if you see that, that should sort of be a red flag to you that this person may be 
and power dynamics is positioned in a way that would allow them to do these things. Um, I worked throughout grad school and I was told by a professor at grad school um, that asking me why did I work at the coffee shop so much? Didn't I want to be a museum professional? Um, I should be doing internships instead because that's a better use of my time. And I sat there dumbfounded. You know, this coffee shop job is allowing me to be here right now. I need this job. And so, you know, understanding that you know, switching the way you're thinking that, you know, seeing this litany of list of unpaid internships doesn't necessarily mean that the person is one of those go-getters who wants to go out there. They probably are if they have all these internships. But it also means that they have, are positioned in a way that allows them to, to have that resume. And when you're looking at candidates, you know, not always having to pick the number one star, you know, the person that really screams at you, that person's going to be able to find a job. <laughs> They're going to be able to find a job quickly if you say no to them. Think about the people in that pile that maybe don't have as bright of a, um, of a resume, but have the other skills that they, they might need in that position. When you're hiring a programmer and look, they look and come from a, a, a background that is different than the people that they're, that they're interacting with, one of the questions should be, what do you know about cultural competency? You know, how, what critical race theory have you read recently? What do you know about feminist pedagogies of leadership and collaboration? Those things are just as important as being able to put together a lesson plan the right way or writing the perfect tombstone label. I mean, these are 21st century skills that museum professionals really, really do need. Um, some, uh, some action steps that we've identified at Museum Workers Speak regarding this mentorship versus sponsorship, um, you know, recruit young people and implement their ideas. Um, Chris and Sarah have both been incredibly supportive. Um, and Chris just talked about, you know, his interns uh, really being cued in and keyed into the, the social movements that are going on right now. They are the people that you go to to get to who have the relationships with activists um, and with community groups. Oftentimes, some of them are involved in their own way. Um, build sponsorship and mentorship into the job description. Tell people in the job description, this is what is required of you. This is part of your job. And all people can be sponsors, but specifically for people in leadership and management positions. And provided an alternative avenue to graduate school. I loved my time at graduate school. It was amazing. It was wonderful for me building as a museum professional. But there are other avenues. Not everyone can have has the the privilege to 
to go to graduate school. And sometimes when you identify, you know, um, teens or young adults that are interested and motivated, you can offer them experience that then can sort of propel them beyond that that MA. And when you're hiring, look for people with not that come from non-traditional backgrounds that might have more of the social skills you're looking for because technical skills can always be taught. They can always be taught. We all learn we all use different collections, management databases, you know. We 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 all have different skills in the museum, but um, you know, to, to, to really have some of those more social skills, I think, is, is critical. To jump onto that idea of an alternative to grad school, um, I keep all of my grad school, which now is it's like 15 years ago, but I keep all of those papers um, in their binders in my office. And I regularly refer to them and pull out articles and give them to staffers. And I don't expect them to read the whole thing, but the idea is to help them understand that theory is something that can be shared and actually can be activated. Um, and it got to the point where my staff for a while referred to, um, referred to it as the graduate school of Sarah. <laughs> because, I, because I kept bringing these articles out and I put Vygotsky's theory of proximal development up on the board in the main part of our office so that everyone could look at it and be reminded to use it. And, um, and I, I just, I do, I, I really appreciate your saying that and that's something that hadn't come up as much in our conversations because, um, because it's something that can feel, it, it can feel informal, but it's crucial. Um, okay, the next thing we wanted to talk a little bit about, and this is actually the last thing before we start, we're going to come out from behind this awful table and, and be a part of the circle with you all, um, is rethinking the rubric for how we go about hiring, and we talked a little bit about this before, both how we go about hiring and then how we go about identifying people that we want to promote and really cultivate within our organizations. Um, so couple of things that I would say around this is like really thinking about reprioritizing what's important for your organization, right? And I think you can do this for the organization, you can do this for your sphere of influence, whatever it is, but you know, if we're talking about diversity and inclusion and you know, just as a side note, we've been having this conversation for like 40 years within <laughs> museums, you can trace the scholarship back but how do we really start to change things, right? What can you change in your organizations Monday when you go back that is gonna create something that's different than what you've always been doing, right? I came across a quote that said, um, you know, organizations are uniquely positioned to get the results that they get. And it's so true when you think about it, right? That we're set up to just continue to, um, support the status quo and how do we start to change some of that and it, it's really about and I was talking a little bit about this in a conversation yesterday like you have to re-examine everything that you're doing and why you're doing it right and if you're stating diversity or an in inclusion or transformation or whatever terminology you want to use as a value for your organization are you living those values right um we, we did some benchmarking in my institution, and it was clear that our values that we stated 
we're not being reinforced with how we work, right? But we can feel good about what our website said because that was what we envisioned ourselves, ourselves to be. But it's really hard to start to look and say, you know what, we're not meeting that. But when you start to examine your practices and what you do and start asking yourselves questions like, does this support the value of diversity in this institution, the way we do this, right, or whatever. And you might not change everything, but you're at least getting in the habit of questioning and reexamining all of the processes, procedures, systems, and whatnot within your organization. Um, you know, as Jillian had said, like, perfect candidate. Can somebody define that for me, right? Like, what does that mean? And so if you're saying you want a diverse staff, A, go out and recruit some diverse candidates and B, hire them, right? And, you know, you can teach skills on the job and you can do that. And this isn't to say, like, um, it's, it's interesting because the, the benchmarking we did in my organization, it was very clear that there was a large number of folks within my organization that equated hiring diversity to lowering your standards, right? And that's, that's an issue in and of itself, but it's, that's not even what it is. It's about bringing into your organization things that um, perspectives, ideas, ways of working that uh, are different than what you're used to, right? And, and that's good. There's a lot of uh, good that comes out of that through creativity and whatnot. So you should be looking to do that, and it's about... Um, how you hire, what do you do to actively retain staff? I mean, are you just saying, hey, we got one, and then <laughs> leaving them on an island to figure out the culture of the institution on their own, um, to build their own relationships, or are you helping them kind of understand the culture and where to push and where to maybe live to fight another day kind of thing, right? And so um, there's, there's a lot of that that we can be doing and, and thinking about like how we've started to do this at the, the Historical Society. We've had a strategic priority for five years, but nobody know, knew what it meant. Nobody knew how to apply it to their jobs. And so that's really what my area has taken on. And we're starting to see things like in our performance reviews people needing to explain how their work aligns with the strategic priority that we have. Or we're starting to see in position descriptions as they're being rewritten language like, you know, this person contributes to an inclusive environment at work or things like that, which is still broad, but that's a step forward for us, particularly in a very regimented organization that our HR processes are what they are, right? So that opens the door a little bit to now we can say, well, what does that mean to contribute to an inclusive environment? How do you do that in your position or your particular job or things like that? But we're starting to see some of those things shift, which is incredibly exciting because those are things that we've been talking about for years and now starting to see some of those happen. Um, hopefully that will start to, to influence how we're writing our job posting and posting salary ranges and things of this nature that need to just happen that haven't been our traditional practice. So, um, you know, it starts small, celebrate the little things, 
But I would challenge everybody. One of the things in my organization was it was always like, oh, well, leadership won't do this and leadership won't do that. And we're not, we're, we're, we're working with leadership and that's one thing, but why wait, right? What can you do right away when you go back? That's what I would have you walk away with from here. You all have different spheres of influence within your organization. There are things you can go back and do immediately to start to change. You model the behavior that you want to see. Other people see that. It becomes catchy, and who knows where it goes from there, right? Well, one thing you can do is go on Facebook and like Museum Workers Speak and join us for our tweet chats. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would just reiterate, again, what we've been talking about here. How you write your job description really matters. What you evaluate your, your candidates on and your employees and specifically managers really, really matters. And, and those sorts of things requiring cultural competency, um, asking about what people's backgrounds are, working with people different than them, um, really is necessary and needed when you're thinking about this idea of, of reimagining this rubric that we, that we go by. Um, something that we've really hit on in our cohort um, and has um, personally been an issue for me, we've, 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 we've had a lot of people had to take a back seat to, um, active, to their role as sort of a museum labor activist um, because their jobs were being threatened by it. Um, and, and something that um, I've heard time and time again from my activist academic friends that it's really, really difficult for them to get jobs, especially if they've been published and if they have a very active and vocal um, uh, uh, public persona around these is issues, specifically about racism, sexism, um, and classism internally in museums and how it relates to labor. And what I would say to all of you, especially those of you who are in charge of hiring, is to not look at those people as troublemakers. You know, not look at those people as um, folks who want to embarrass you, who are going to embarrass, you know, uh, heaven forbid, alienate donors, you know, look at them as your allies, as the, 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 your greatest assets in your, in your, in your organization. Think of them as change makers, as opposed to troublemakers. Um, you know, this is a very vulnerable, the first, um, the, the, the first uh, Twitter tweet that you saw up there was um, from one of my esteemed colleagues, and she said, it's time to end the whispers. It's time for us to talk about these issues out in the open and not to be threatened by them. You know, I... Um, I, as a white woman, have benefited from the same uh, systems that I'm up here critiquing. Um, I ha I'm in a privileged spot. I'm here on a diversity panel, um, and I look like most of the museum field right now. Um, and, you know, that speaks to the subject that we're talking about today. Um, many of my colleagues 
don't work at institutions and can't afford to be here at this conference to um, be to participate in a panel like this. Um, so I would say that you know really finding those folks in your own community, looking at hires and asking them how are you engaged in these issues. Um, some action steps that we've identified about rethinking the rubric is to talk frequently about diversity as a staff. Have scheduled meetings about, okay, what's going on? Where are we? Where do we want to be? How do you feel? Try and create an environment. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to, you know, look at your, <laughs> look at the person across the table and talk about these things. But really try to, intentionality, 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 really try to create a safe space for people to discuss these issues. Um, and, and, and carve out that space. It might not be a meeting. It might be a comment card. It might be, you know, asking people to lunch um, and, and kind of springing on it, them maybe at lunchtime about what, what their experiences are, but also ask them, what are you doing to address these uh, issues of diversity and inclusion? Um, we talk about uh, transparency. Um, Chris just mentioned this for a second, and when he was talking about uh, the real talk that they give to candidates and to uh, especially candidates from underrepresented populations, let them know what the reality of the organizational culture is. Um, talk about who they will be working with not in a gossipy way, but in a way that is true and authentic to what they're going to experience. Um, uh, tell them what is expected of them. You know, so often I see job descriptions and that very last line, other duties as assigned. <laughs> we all have seen that. My job description has it. Um, it's necessary a lot of time, especially in small museums, but be as specific as possible. You know, let people know what that work-life balance is going to look like and check in with them. You know, don't have this conversation once when they're hired. Maybe it's every six months, maybe it's annually at their annual um, performance review, but really um, be, stay engaged with these issues. And something that we're calling on um, as museum workers speak is to ha call on AAM, ASLH, to include diversity and inclusion benchmarks in the accreditation process. So it's not enough to say what how great your storage facilities are, um, but to really, again, quantify, find a way to quantify these things that seem unquantifiable. But... Um, you know, insisting that if you are truly going to be a leading museum, these are the things that you should be doing related to diversity and inclusion. And if you aren't doing them, you don't get accreditation. I'm sure that the museum field will start to change if that's taken seriously. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is for the three of us to get up and take our chairs and actually come sit without this table between us and you and to give you all a chance in conversation with one another. So if you sort of want to, if any of you who are in the back are willing to come forward, that would be great. Um, but 
um, I, I want to talk a little bit about barriers. Um, barriers to making change that we want to make. Um, and we can do it without, if you want, no, no need to say what institution you're from unless you want to. Um, but I, I assume that you're here because you'd like to see change. So, so let's talk a little bit about what's standing in our way. I would also say we would like to hear your successes as well, right? Because you've heard some of our stories, but I know those stories are out, out there with you as, as well. So share that with the rest of us so that we can maybe learn from what you're doing as well. Hi, I'm Ashley Balknight. I am the assistant curator at The Hermitage. I don't mind sharing that. Um, so as you guys were talking, the first thing I really thought about was um, we keep talking about this pipeline, but one of the issues that I found is that there's an issue of access on either side of that pipeline. And most of the time, that's either in academia or within the community itself. So we keep talking about you know, people coming in for hiring and for internships, but you're assuming that these folks even know the path to get to your institution. Um, and so that has become really um, a key issue for me, seeing as how I didn't go to school with anyone of color until college. Um, and so it was very much of a culture shock. And so as a current public historian, I make an effort to be visible in my community um, and sort of show even students as young as 11 and 12 years old of people of color that this job is possible for them, um, that it's something that's attainable. And at the Hermitage, something that we're doing currently, uh, we're working with a junior curators club from a museum magnet school. Um, so I'm working with a group of eighth graders and they're designing an exhibit for us, um, sort of like an outreach internship program. I'm teaching them how to do project management, how to do um, exhibit installation, how to do photo copyright um, forms, everything that we would do in our project teams, they're learning at 12 years old. And it's something really important for me to be visible in their space because it shows that I'm not afraid to sort of go in to um, the community. I'm not afraid to meet them like face to face. Um, and it really opens the door for our institution to be welcoming to them because for many community members, for many of their parents, they saw museums as spaces that weren't for them. And so you can't expect people to have an interest in taking internships or being a part of this field if they were always told generationally that museums are for people who don't look like you, they're for people with higher um, economic means. And so trying to get a job there is kind of pointless because you're not really helping your own, you're helping another community. So we have to change that by being more active and visible on the other side of the pipeline too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley. And this, this sort of idea of, I mean, we talked a lot about internal practices, but this idea of the museum should reflect internally the, 
the society it wants to see outside, sort of the impact, was the original impetus of us wanting to speak at the AAM. We wanted to talk about, okay, it's great, you're building all these programs, you're doing dialogic tours that are geared towards moving people on a train to social justice, but when your staff is all white, no one's gonna buy into that. And also it's important for our communities, right? To, to the easiest way to, to, for them to visualize that this place is for us is to see people like them there. And I'm not talking about the frontline staff in the security officers. I'm talking about, and that's in a lot of museums, where their diversity numbers come from. You know, when they're going for um, IMLS grants, they're saying, oh, our staff is 40% diversified, but all those people are making minimum wage. So it's about having people in positions of power that also reflect the communities and, and sort of the society that, that we seek. So I might just add to your, um, based on what you said, Ashley, like, so we've been able to, in the fellows program, we go out and we recruit incredibly aggressively, right? And we say, we're gonna have at least 75% placement for students of color or students that identify as diverse. And we won't, it's not acceptable to not have that. And so, you know, we take all majors and we do whatever else, but we're on, the ground on campus. We're working with ethnic studies departments. We're working with women's studies departments. We're working with um, a lot of different areas. And basically, it's, 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 if you want that makeup in your program, your group, your staff, whatever, just make it happen. And don't, don't let, don't let uh, the fact that it's hard work, that you might actually have to get out of your building, be a barrier to make that happen. Um, so I just wanted to um, sort of ask the question of the group. I feel like um, we are casually throwing around the words inclusion and diversity without actually taking the time to define them. Um, and it seems like we're relying a lot on um, uh, visual markers of diversity. And I wonder um, if that is limiting how we're approaching this. Are we meaning diversity of experience, diversity of... Um, uh, ethnicity, what are we meaning? Are we relying on those visual cues? Do we want people to just see that we are diverse, or what do we mean? So, Hala, thank you so much. It was actually in, sorry, it was actually in our outline to have that conversation, and suddenly I at least realized that we had gotten way down into the conversation and hadn't done it, so I'm really, really glad you brought it up. Um, and we actually have had this conversation, um, and I I think you're right. I think it depends. Each institution is going to have to figure out for itself what its priorities are. At least that's my perspective um, in terms of diversity. But, um, but to me, what we're saying is we want, if whatever we want to walk through the door of our institution, that's what our staff needs to look like. Hi, my name's Eric. I'm a curator at the Ohio History Connection. Um, and one of uh, the collecting areas that I work with is our Gay Ohio History Initiative. Uh, it's LGBTQ materials and kind of touching on what Sohela brought up with her question 
Uh, one way that, that we've done that and kind of addressed inclusivity and diversity is through our collections. And, um, you know, as a straight ally, it's an, it's an important part of my job to me. It's not a collection that I want to give lip service to. Um, and so I really push to get a display out on the uh, exhibit floor of some of the materials from the collection. So that might be one strategy for um, you know, kind of showing that your organization is making steps to um, be more inclusive and um, diverse. I, I know that kind of the crux of this is uh, staff, staff members and, and interns, but you can also incorporate collections into that as well. Um, And I know we have a comment here, but I just want to, um, so for us, like, we decided to quit chasing diversity because you can define diversity in so many different ways. So we're looking at internally, what does inclusion look like? What does an inclusive work culture look like? What, is, what, what are inclusive work practices? Because then we can include everybody. I would say though, like, <clears throat> to me, it is important to identify some types particularly more difficult types like race, right? Because my institution, we can find a way to, if we're talking about diversity of thought or whatever, we can find a way to say we're already diverse, we're good, right? But if we're saying we really wanna increase diversity here, here and here, doesn't mean we're ignoring all kinds of diversity, but we're saying these are things that our institution needs to reflect and so we're going to work towards those. If we achieve those goals, then we can move on to the, the next groups. But otherwise, we scattershot our resources across everything, and we don't do anything well. So. We had another conversation that I'm just remembering. We had a lot of phone calls to prepare for this, and, and that was this idea that diversity is an adjective or a noun. It's something that is or is not, whereas inclusion is a verb, and it's something that you do, and it's actions that you take. And I think, Chris, you were the person who mentioned that originally, but I found that to be really helpful in my own thinking. And I think with um, Museum Workers Speak, there was a, a slide that we also skipped over about intersectionality. Um, we really are, are, instead of talking about diversity, thinking about intersectionality and um, this idea that, you know, there are visible um, oppressions and there are invisible oppressions. There are things that people go through um, based on visual signifiers and then there are uh, things that people go through and oppressions that they experience based on their positionality, things like socioeconomic status, geographic status, like where did they come from? Are you from a rural area far less likely to you know, interact with museums. And I think just reiterating what, what Sarah said, that every institution, it's going to look differently. You know, at the Detroit Institute of Arts, we are a community um, museum in a city that's 85% black. Um, it is my thought that our, our staff should reflect that. Um, it's on the name of the building, um, and I can tell you right now, it doesn't, re doesn't reflect that. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that 
you know, having a, a staff again that reflect sort of what public you're serving, um, and then also, you know, thinking about things like sexuality, um, these other gender identity, um, these other um, identity markers that um, are a little bit harder to pin down. But that's a great point, you know. I was, yeah, <laughs> can go on about that. Hello, everyone. My name is Mari Carpenter. Um, I'm from, I'm the collections manager from the Delaware Division of Historical and Cultural Affairs. And um, I want to just stress, and I appreciate Chris and the whole, the whole panel talking about um, helping interns that you may not be able to pay uh, to mentor them. Um, I didn't think of myself as a sponsor, but I guess that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, because I have one that is actually, um, I have a collection assistant, and I'm empowering her because she was my intern. But if I introduce you to her, she's my collection assistant. Uh, because the one thing is that I'm not only, she stayed with me for two years as an undergraduate, and couldn't pay her, but I gave her a lot of responsibilities. And I treated her like a staff person, which was empowering to her. And I allow her to go to all the meetings that I went to, uh, I gave her the quote-unquote real talk um, because I said, you're not going to mess up my name and my reputation. And she's here walking around and um, actually at this conference. And I'm actually investing in her because I'm helping her pay for some of the things that she's doing here um, because I believe in that. And I do have some retention because there are some students that stay with me. And I tell them right off the bat, like you all said, be uh, truthful. Let them know what they're getting into because it's not going to pay a lot. But at the point is if you put into this internship, I'm going to put into you. Okay? There are some that don't want to. That's cool. Uh, we walk them out the door. But, uh, but we also tell them what we offer. And we offer that mentorship. It's not just because uh, in collections, we need all the hands we can get, right? And I talked to you this morning, right? Okay, that's how I do my job. But at the same time, I'm also going to let them know, I'm going to help you, how do you read uh, those job announcements? Where do you get job announcements? How do you look on the websites for them? So I'm giving them technical things, just like you said. Um, also, to Ashley's point, hi, Ashley, um, because uh, we talked, and there's another person that's walking around here that just got hired for ASLH that I was very much involved as a mentor. Uh, basically, I let them know that uh, we are going out to HBCUs to, and a lot of HBCUs don't know about the program, especially in history. And that's one of the things. So if you are interested in getting diversity, talking about real diversity, real talk, then you need to walk the payment. You need to get out there. And if you don't know, then you can partner up with some institutions, uh, community groups that will help you. If you have a staff person that is the only person of color on staff and you can't seem to identify, well then mentor them up with someone that's in the community that will be able to, because I've done that too. I was in another institution and I was asked to mentor another collection manager that was a person of color. So I just want to encourage you, there's all creative ways, just don't limit yourself. Thank you so much. I have a, and in fact, there are a bunch of people here who are going to be leading, and Mari is one of them, a session immediately after this. Um, 
and I'm going to ask them in a second to say something about it, because there may be a number of you who want to participate in that as well. Um, but I have a question for you. I'm really struggling, again, I'm not the person totally in charge, but the people who are in charge don't, it's complicated, but they're not that interested in making a lot of effort. Um, how, like, how, what can I give them? What specific tools can I give them? And I'm, I'll ask this of any of you who know, to do the recruitment piece, because that, I'm getting stuck on the recruitment piece, so. You're in DC? So Howard University? Okay, but also ask them. Um, there's also community centers, because a lot of African Americans, we, do, we like to uh, congregate in community centers, churches. Um, I'm just talking about African Americans, but there's other cultural groups that you need to uh, look into. But I would say is going to the community is the first step, because it's getting outside the doors. They don't know who you are. And if you say the Ford Theater, they're going to say, well, that's the history. We don't know anything about that history. So what are the ways that you're recruiting? And your education, folks, you should be neck and neck alignment, yeah. like you said, to neck and neck with them. Um, I, I would just encourage you, just like you said, to have that conversation. But get uh, alignment with other people in other um, organizations in D.C. that have people of color that's doing it. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You may be able to partner, maybe go into a, uh, joint grants. Um, so, so there's a lot of opportunities. Um, one of my co-founders, uh, Monica Montgomery, if you don't know her, she's fabulous. Uh, she had uh, uh, started, she has started an, a recruitment organization specifically for people of color called Museum Hue. Um, you should follow them. You should contact Monica if this is something that you are interested in. Um, the, the, she's heard time and time again white people coming up to her saying, I would love to hire people of color, but I don't know where they are. Um, or there are no candidates that will, uh, that will fit them. And she's like, oh no, there's plenty of candidates. And that sort of inspired her to, 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 to work on this project. So they're a great resource if you're not, if you're in NYC, uh, uh, you know, look them up, and if you aren't, contact Monica. Thanks. I think each of us probably has more potential than we realize to make connections between those young people in the profession who have incredible gifts and those people who are working in institutions who are looking for those people, but they just haven't found each other yet. Um, so I'm going to give you an example of something that happened in one day. Um, and, and this was nothing about recruitment. It was just being aware of opportunities to connect people. So with another colleague, I was interviewing two college leaders of an art and leadership program, and I had gotten to watch them the day before working with this group of young boys. And I was so impressed with the respect that they showed for this group of boys um, from, from a, a diverse community and, and the way they supported each other. And I was interviewing them with their boss from the museum there. And at the end, I said, 
you know, I just commended them. I said, you guys have exactly what is, looked, is being looked for by so many museums in this country right now. You could go anywhere with what you have demonstrated here. And so I gave them my cards, and we said we'd stay in touch. And that night, I was getting ready to leave and chatting with the museum assistant director. And you know, I, I said, if you don't hire one of these guys, somebody else is going to, because it was a summer project, a contract position. Well, she did, one of them. The other one got in touch with me, said that he really enjoyed you know, getting to know me and keep, keep in touch. And the next week, I found out about a position at another museum and asked if he would consider locating to this other place. And he said, well, sure. I'm at a stage in life when I could. Put him in touch with my colleague at that institution. And you know, that was just from listening to two young people in an interview and kind of just keeping that on the radar screen. And two people, two be amazing museum professionals. So we can all, you know, even if we can't really mentor someone um, over the long haul, we can plug people in. I just wanted to say I really appreciate how much you guys are focusing on emerging professionals. Um, I don't this conference is different than other ones I've been to. I don't feel like there is always a space for our voice. Um, I don't work in an institution right now. It's been very challenging to find a job, but if you want to keep having these types of conversations about these issues, we're it right here. Like, these are things I care about. These are things I'm passionate about, and I, you know, we're it. So please reach out to young people. This is, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to help and change museums for the future. So. I want to tell you, I'm so glad you're here. One of the things that's really hard um, when, I, when I talk to, I do informational interviews a lot, I'm sure many of you do, is that I say, you know, if there's any way that you can find a way to go to a conference, I know, you know, there are scholarships, try, if there's any way, it's going to be a huge boon for your career. Um, and, and it's a really hard thing to do, but it's an opportunity like no other to meet people and to have conversations. And um, so I'm just really glad you're here. Hi, my name is Nancy. I'm um, about four months into my new position at the Chicago History Museum. So I really want to just appreciate the conversation, not just because I'm taking away so many great ideas, um, not just for programs, but you know, for things that we can do um, museum-wide, but also as the person of color who has also just entered you know, an organization that is not as diverse as it wants to be yet. Um, so, I, you know, I find myself um, starting to navigate this, in some ways, new culture, um, and hopefully, um, you know, begin to garner the support to also begin to change some of the practices to match, indeed, um, that priority um, and that, that value in the, in the 
honor the intention. So just thank you for the session. I think time is about to be up. Um, so just very quickly, because they already mentioned, um, I am Dina Bailey. I am an ASLH council member, and Marion here is a council member as well. So at 3 o'clock, which is in less than five minutes, two minutes, um, we're actually continuing this conversation a couple of rooms down. So it's 140E, I think. And uh, we are specifically talking about what ASLH should be doing, what ASLH is currently doing in terms of diversity and inclusion. So talking about our diversity and inclusion statement that we've created, uh, the task force, the values that, that ASLH is putting forward in terms of diversity and inclusion. And so we would very much like you to kind of continue over. It's during the break, so it's from about 3 to 3.45 or so, um, knowing that the next session will be starting. But if you have interest in continuing this conversation and specifically what ASLH is doing and should be doing, um, join us a few rooms down. Thank you so much. Um, thank you all so much for being here. And we have the uh, two things. Evaluations are pink, and they're on a lot of the chairs. Please use them. Uh, ASLH really needs to know um, your take. And then additionally, I'm helping to coordinate the pop-up sessions. And if there's anything that's come out of this or any other session you've been in that you would really like to talk about, the pop-up sessions are meant to be conversation spaces. They are all you have to do is write down, um, write down the topic you're interested in before six o'clock today and post it out on the board near registration or tweet it with the hashtag AASLHPOP. At six o'clock, we're going to start. We're going to ask you to. Um, vote, and you can vote either by making a mark on the sheet or by liking one of the tweets at hashtag AASLHPOP, so please do that, um, because it's a great way to have some sort of um, grassroots conversations, and I know right now that it, when, when I came in here, there were only two proposals on the board, and we have two sessions for them, one Friday afternoon and one Saturday morning, so we want to make sure people's voices are heard. Cool, thank you.